Well, my name's Austin. Uh, I'm on the team here at the church. Our lead pastor, Trevor, is getting a bit of a reprieve this morning, and so uh, it's, a, it's an honor to be trusted with this space to teach and an honor to open the scriptures with you guys. Um, if you were here last week, you know that we kind of kicked off the book of Judges, and Trevor mentioned that you know as we journey into Judges, the text is going to get a little bit darker and darker and darker as it talks about the Judges and these stories of Israel, which is fitting because we're approaching Advent. We're approaching that when history in the world was at its darkest, the light of the world came in to visit us. And so we're, we're in the book of Judges this morning, and it's an interesting passage. We'll be in Judges chapter 2, verses 6, all the way to chapter 3, verses 6. It's Judges 2, verse 6, all the way through 3, verse 6. And it's an interesting chunk of text because it's a bit of a, a reintroduction. Trevor did an incredible job last week with the first introduction to Judges, talking about mostly faithful isn't faithful. Partially dead isn't all the way dead. And so today we're opening the, the second part of the introduction, which is a bit of a recap. And Trevor did an amazing job talking about, you know, there's this verse at the end of Judges which says, and there was no king in the land, and the Israelites did whatever was right in their own eyes. In our chunk of text this morning, it's a bit of a summary of everything that's going to come in the series ahead of us. Chapter 2, verse 11 says, Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord once they're in the land. And chapter verse 5 says, But whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against the Israelites because they had done evil. Verse 15, the hand of the Lord being against them throws them into distress. And so they cry out to the Lord. The following verse, verse 16, and as soon as the Israelites cry out, the Lord raises up a judge that saves them out of the hand of the raiders and their enemies. And then in verse 19, it says, when the judge died and they had been delivered, Israel returned to their evil, wicked ways, but even more evil, more corrupt, more bad than it had been historically. They refused to give up their evil practices and their stubborn ways. That's verse 19. What we find in the book of Judges is this keeps happening on a cyclical, repeating basis. In other words, as Israel inherits the land, they rebel against the Lord. There's retribution against Israel because the hand of the Lord is against them. They repent. There's a remission of their guilt, and there's reprieve. They're delivered from their enemies, and then Israel just rebels again. And so this morning, as we look at Judges chapter 2, verse 6, through chapter 3, verse 6, uh, we've, we've split it into kind of three chunks. Uh, the first chunk is it's, we're remembering the faithfulness of the first generation. The faithfulness of the first generation that saw the works of the Lord to continue to serve the Lord. The second is the forgetfulness of the next generation and how important family ministry is in light of that. And finally, it's certainly good that the first generation was faithful to some degree, mostly faithful but not completely faithful. But in the last part is we will see the 
absolute commitment of God to be faithful to his promises. So Judges chapter 2, verses 6, to chapter 3, verse 6. But I want to start with this. Uh, I'm from Tulsa, Oklahoma, and I had the gift of being raised in a neighborhood in which my elementary school was a bit nestled in the the middle of the neighborhood. Uh, And as a result, I I didn't grow up riding the bus. I was a walk-to-school, ride-your-bike-to-school kind of a kid. But after I got out of elementary school, I entered into middle school, and I was introduced to the bus route. And wow, what an experience. You know, the most fun part about the bus was not the ride to school. It was the ride back home. And without fail, uh, the point of the day that, you know, most of the kids looked forward to is sitting in their last period, the bell would go off, and they would just run like wild folks, wild kids, out the doors into the bus. There'd be a brief pit stop to give some high fives to your friends, say hello to folks, but then you had to run to your bus. They were dismissed to the bus, and then you got on the bus, and you kind of had an unofficial assigned seat. Once you got into your unofficial assigned seat, you were driven to your neighborhood, and then you had a stop, a localized stop, just for a portion of the bus, and then you got off the bus and you walked to your house. We see this about to happen in the book of Judges. In Judges, the people are dismissed from the presence of Joshua to their land. They break off into tribes onto their buses. They get into their corners of the territory. And we find out in the text that even individual parcels are allotted to families. When we get to chapter 2, verse 6, the kids are getting dismissed to their bus. It says this in verse 6. It says, after Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, they ran out to take possession of the land. What a fulfillment, what a moment, what a gift for the Israelites. They had been looking towards this for 40 years as they wandered in the desert. They had been looking forward to this under the leadership of Joshua as they came into the land. And now there is this moment in which Joshua dismisses them to the land that they were inheriting. And says they go not to look at it, not to scout it out and not to spy it out as they did historically. They go out to take possession of it, to take possession of God's promise for them. And when they get there, they aren't to wrestle or argue or dispute parcels of land, but it says, and each went to their own inheritance. In verse 7, these people, these families that took possession of the promise, that saw the works of the Lord, that came into possession of the inheritance, it says, and they served the Lord throughout their entire lifetime. Not being forgetful. Not dismissing what God had done. Not turning to the temptations of those other inhabitants surrounding them, but it says they continue to serve the Lord throughout their lifetime. You know, I've got a small circle of friends I went to Oral Roberts University with, and a few of us have landed in ministry, and other of us have landed in the business world, and 
we're all still committed to the local church and serving the church. And it's such a gift when we come together, we'll, we'll text this back and forth to each other, or if we get together for some kind of event in the middle of the country, we always encourage one another with this, hey, keep running the race. Finish strong. Because we've seen a lot of people start the race and not finish it. And so we just, we'll send a text. Hey, keep running the race. Finish strong. This is that moment that Israel looks to serve God, not just as they take possession of the land, but after they're in the land and through their entire lifetime. Throughout the lifetime of Joshua and the elders who outlived him, who had seen all the great things the Lord had done, and all the great things he'd done on behalf of Israel. You know, we see here in this text that one of the keys to finishing strong, one of the keys to coming to faith, but living the kind of life that's able to serve the Lord throughout our entire lifetime, is being the kinds of people that remember the works of the Lord that recall the amazing things that he had done. You can imagine these families dispersed throughout the land, each family to its individual parcel. And five years goes by, 10 years goes by, 15, 20 years goes by. Joshua's getting older in age. And the thing that, that keeps them in the land the thing that helps them to be faithful throughout the entire course of their life is their, their remembrance of the Lord. I think about, uh, as a kid, uh, jumping off the high dive into a big old, you know, 12-foot deep pool. It's important to know how to swim when you get into the deep end. What's more important than knowing how to swim is continuing to swim. Right? You jump into the deep end. If you show, hey, I'm just going to swim for a few feet, that's not going to end well for you. You've got to keep swimming once you're in the water. For Israel, once they're in the land, they have to keep being faithful, keep serving the Lord. This idea of remembering what God has done, remembering the goodness, the greatness, and the deeds of God is scattered all throughout the Scriptures. This is an example in Psalms. The psalmist is speaking, and he's in distress. He's in anguish. He feels a bit like he's been backed into a corner. Where is, where is God? Is he near me? Is he close to me? Does he see me? Maybe you've felt like that at some point. And then in the middle of the psalm, it, it turns. And then the, the psalmist says, Then I thought to myself, to this... I will appeal the years when the Most High stretched out his right hand. Verse 11, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your miracles of long ago. Verse 12, I'll consider all of them and I'll meditate on your mighty deeds. You know, when we feel backed into a corner, when it feels dark and like God is far away, when we're looking to be faithful for a lifetime and not just for a season, so important to remember the works of God. That's what this first generation 
leaned on. And for us as Christians, that's why gathering together on a Sunday morning is so important. Certainly I'm an extrovert and I just love seeing you guys. But there's something so powerful about coming to worship the Lord together and remembering all the great things that he's done. There's something powerful about as a community, going through a prayer of confession, confessing our sins, and remembering that God has forgiven us. There's something powerful about opening up these historic texts and remember that there are people that have gone through situations similar to us and that God has always been faithful. Coming to the table of communion and remembering and rehearsing God. But it's not just here that we do this. It's one of the reasons why we promote spiritual disciplines in the home. Waking up in the morning and making it to your prayer chair, your prayer corner, your prayer porch, whatever it is, and opening the scriptures and remembering, rehearsing, reminding yourself of the goodness of God. Why maybe you might be driving to work in the morning or driving your kids home from school and you have worship music playing and you find these pockets of five or ten minutes just to sing and to worship God to remind yourself of his goodness and his faithfulness. Church, one of the ways that we stay faithful for a lifetime, staying committed to the practices that help us remember the works, the deeds, and the greatness of the Lord. And so one of my questions this morning for us is, what are you doing on a regular basis to remember the good things that God has done throughout history and in your life? Is scripture reading regular enough to continually remind yourself? Is your commitment to gathering together with this church on Sunday mornings regular enough to remind yourself? Is your gathering together in community groups and serving people regular enough to remind yourself so that you can serve God for a lifetime? The first generation was faithful, mostly faithful. That's important. The second thing is this. Uh, the second generation beyond them became forgetful. And as we talk about the forgetfulness of the next generation, I do want to poke a little bit um, on family ministry and talk about how important family ministry is. This is chapter 2, verse 10. It says, After Joshua had passed away, the whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors. It says, another generation grew up. Another generation was raised up that neither knew the Lord or knew what he had done. The previous generation knew the Lord, knew what he had done. The second generation did not know the Lord, did not know what he had done. And once they forgot, once they were unaware of God and didn't know him any longer, verse 11, it's actually then that the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. It's at that point, once the Lord was out of their memory, and once they lost the knowledge of God, they began to do evil in his eyes. And they served the Baals, which is simply the surrounding gods, the 
the neighbors around them began to serve and to worship those gods. Verse 12. It says they forsook the Lord. They forgot about him, put him in their rearview mirror, the God of their ancestors. The one that had actually brought them out of Egypt, they forgot about him. The second half of verse 12. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. And when they did, this aroused the Lord's anger because they forgot about him. They did what the Lord asked them not to do. They forsook doing what the Lord had asked them to do. And verse 14 says, In his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of raiders. Raiders who plundered them and took the things that were valuable from them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. Israel had become weakened in the process. Verse 15, it says, So when when these raiders were coming against them, whenever Israel went out to fight, it says, the hand of the Lord was actually against Israel. It was against Israel to defeat them just as he had sworn to them. And Israel was in great distress. Man, when we forget about the Lord, how good he is. When we fall out of a relationship and knowledge of God, when we forget about his works in history and in our own life, it plunges us into distress. It's amazing how how quickly this happens for Israel. You would expect this to take hundreds and hundreds of years, but for Israel, it takes a lot less than that. Simply one generation. You know, two examples of this. There's, a, there's an old quote. Some historians uh, credit it to Andrew Carnegie, who was you know, an industrialist in the 1800s. Some people say, ah, it's rubbish, but the phrase is around. Um, and it's this phrase that there's this idea that uh, families will go from short sleeves to short sleeves in three generations. In other words, parents, members, leaders of a family will start their labor, start their work young and short sleeves. They'll amass wealth and resources and land, and they'll start wearing some long sleeve button downs. The second generation inherits these long sleeved button downs, is able to sustain it, and then when it gets to the third generation, because that third generation didn't know the hard work it took to go from short sleeves to long sleeves, that third generation goes from long sleeves to short sleeves. Elon Musk talks about this. Elon, he's a, he's a space guy. I'm not really a space guy, but he's a space guy. He talks about how just 50 years ago, 1969, we sent people to the moon. And decades after that, we're not sending them to the moon, but just to lower orbit to our, our space station. And now the, the space station is on decline, and now we don't send anybody to outer space. He goes on to talk about how the Egyptians built these amazing pyramids, and then they forgot how to do it. The Romans built these amazing aqueducts, And then they forgot how to do it. And he goes on to say, people just assume that technology is going to get better and better and better. But in reality, in order for technology to get better and better and better, it requires the really, really, really hard work of people. 
working together to build on the foundation that others have laid. There's something to be true of that for us as well when it comes to faith. As disciples of Jesus, we can't assume that future generations are just going to be filled with more faith than we are. We can't just assume that future generations are going to know God the way that we know God. We can't assume that future generations are going to do their best to be faithful and obedient the way that we are. We can't take that for granted. That's why family ministry is so important. Parents and grandparents sowing into their kids, not so they have 50% of what they have, but so they have 110% of what they have. Raising up their kids and discipling them so they know God better than you do. That they see God work more than you have. That they're more faithful, more obedient than you are. Deuteronomy really tries to lay into this. This is Deuteronomy chapter 6, and some commentators will say, uh, this is a reflection of how the Israelites failed in Judges once they made it into the land. This is Deuteronomy 6, verse 6. He says, These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. But not just on yours. Watch what he says. He says, Impress them. Seal them on your children. Talk about them when you're sitting at home. Talking about them when you're walking along the road, or may I say, driving in your car to school. Talk about them when you're lying down and you're, you're tucking your kids in. Talk about them when you get up and you're sitting around the breakfast table. Verse 8, tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Uh, write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Verse 10, when the Lord your God brings you into the land he swore to your fathers, when he's faithful, when he gives you what he's promised to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you a land that's large, flourishing with cities you did not build, uh, houses and all kinds of things you did not provide for, wells that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. When all of this happens, be careful. Be careful to not forget the Lord because you'll be Tempted to. Don't forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And in the future, when your sons and daughters ask you about all of this, retell the story of God over and over and over again. God delivered us. God saved us. God led us. God fought for us. God gave us this land. Family ministry is important. I was uh, sitting in the back during worship just a few minutes ago, and um, I was overjoyed at um, 9.20 to see the, or 10.20 to see the room just full of people. I was even more overjoyed at 10.25 when half the room emptied because half of the room was kids. Church, what a gift that half of our church is the next generation that we're entrusted with to press upon them the knowledge, the goodness, the greatness in the works of God. That's why it's important as a, as a family unit to come to church together, serve together, 
pray together. Why it's important as a family unit to wake up in the morning and around the breakfast table before everyone gets going and off to school just to spend a few moments reading a quick, quick scripture and praying. Or at dinner as, as the night is coming to a close just to remember where did you see God at work today? So one of my questions for us is, are you talking in the morning with your family about how good God is? Are you talking with your family in the evening about how good God is? In your car drives and in some of the spare moments you have just as a family, are you impressing upon your kids the goodness and the greatness of God? And this is the third and final point. This is verse 16. Verse 15 says, Israel forgot the Lord. They did what was evil. And man, they were in a lot of trouble. They were in distress. And it says this in verse 16. It says, when Israel was in distress, the Lord was kind. The Lord was compassionate. The Lord was faithful. And the Lord raised up leaders. He raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of the raiders, the same raiders the Lord that had allowed them to take control of in the first place. And verse 17 says, But even as they were being delivered by these leaders and these judges in their distress, yet they still would not listen to the judges. But they gave themselves to other gods and continued to worship them. They quickly turned from the ways of their ancestors who had been obedient in the Lord's commands. Verse 18, Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge. And he saved Israel out of the hands of their enemies as long as that judge lived. For the Lord relented. Man, it's a good thing the Lord relents from his anger. It's a good thing the Lord relents from his judgments. It says, the Lord relented because of their groaning under those who oppressed and afflicted them. Verse 19, but... When the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors. Man, for Israel, they just don't learn their lesson. It just gets worse and worse and worse and worse. Following other gods, serving and worshiping them, they refused to give up the evil practices and their stubborn ways. Therefore, the Lord was not just angry. Verse 20. It says, the Lord was very angry with Israel. And he says, because this nation has violated their side of the covenant, the side of the covenant I ordained for their ancestors and they have not listened to me, verse 21, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations Joshua left when he died. Verse 22, I will use them. God kind of keeps them around to use for some of his purposes. I will use them to test Israel. I'll test Israel and see whether they will keep the way of the Lord and walk in it as their ancestors did. Verse 23, then then the Lord allowed those nations to remain, to stay Israel's neighbors, to stay in the land. He allowed them to remain. He did not drive them out at once by giving them into the hands of Joshua. It's an interesting idea to reflect on and to remember 
that the Lord allows testing in our life. He doesn't just allow testing in our life. This text would actually say, God uses testing in our life. And he uses it to know, are we going to remain faithful? Are we going to remain obedient? Are we going to do what he's asked us to do? And it's in some of the small tests. If we can prove ourselves faithful, we'll be faithful with more. But when you're faithful with more, the tests get bigger too. So don't be so fast. Reminds me, uh, growing up, uh, playing sports and uh, being in the locker room with folks. Uh, you know, it, it's one thing to, to be in your house with your family, and there's a, there's a, there's a culture there. And you kind of, after beyond your house, you kind of get to, well, you don't pick your friends. Your parents pick your friends for you. And so there's a, you know, there's a similar kind of culture there. And then sometimes you're in a classroom, and you may be in a, you know, you may be taking music classes, and so there's a kind of a specific culture there. You may be taking art classes, and there's a culture there. Advanced classes, there's a culture there. You, you kind of tend to mingle in spaces with very kind of common culture and common understanding, and then you get into a locker room. And it just becomes kind of a, a, you know, a no-holds-barred area in which it just gathers people from every area, every neighborhood, every background. And when you're in a space like that, I can imagine that's how Israel felt a little bit. They weren't in a homogenous culture anymore. Their neighbors weren't just other Israelites. The people in the tent next to them wasn't just other folks in their tribe. Instead, the locker next to them was some person that didn't believe in God at all. Some person that was completely antagonistic towards God. Some person that believed in a completely different God. And when you're in the locker room, you're tested in all kinds of ways. You get invited to speak poorly of other people in your grade. Are you going to kind of take the bait on that? Are you going to be obedient and honor your classmates. You have folks in the locker room disrespecting their parents and speaking poorly of their parents. Are you going to join in? Or are you going to say, no, I'm going to honor my father and my mother? Oh, man, I wish this person wasn't on the team at all. I wish they would just go away. Are you, are you going to join in with that? Are you going to say, no, 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 no. I want, I want to honor them and bring them on the team, um, help them develop as an athlete, etc." The, the locker room was a place of testing how you were going to act and how you were going to speak. For Israel, they're, they're in the locker room of the nations right now. The people right next to them are no longer Israelites. They're family and tribesmen. It is people from the nations that don't worship Yahweh and don't know Yahweh. They worship the Baals. It's not uncommon for God to test us. This is Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 12. It says, Yet, O Lord of hosts, you test not just the unrighteous, but you actually test the righteous. Those that are faithful and obedient, you test them. You see the mind and the heart. James chapter 1, verse 3, James encourages the church. You should know that you're going to get tested. God is going to use tests in your life. But know that when you're tested... When your faith is tested and tried, if you pass those tests, it produces the fruit of endurance. Your ability to remain faithful when circumstances are hard. Your ability to remain obedient when life 
is difficult. So I might ask you the question, what is the locker room of your life? Maybe you're surrounded by coworkers that don't know God and don't believe in God and they're antagonistic towards God. How are you going to act in the midst of that? For some of you, it's the classroom at college. Your classmates, your peers don't know God. They don't believe in God. Antagonistic towards faith and towards Christianity. How are you going to act in the midst of that? For some of you, your locker room feels like your house. (laughs) It's a little dicey in your house. But when it's dicey, how are you going to respond? You're going to be faithful and obedient, continuing to turn towards the Lord. When we look at Joshua, Judges, Judges chapter 2, we're reminded that it's a good thing to remain faithful for a lifetime. But we should never assume that we or our families or our friends or our coworkers are going to remain faithful as well. It just takes one or two generations for the faith to be gone, to forget and to forsake the Lord. So sometimes we find ourselves in a season of testing, sometimes because of what we have done, and sometimes just that's the way life is. But when we're tested, will we remain faithful? And so... I think kind of this, these ideas in mind, faithfulness and forgetfulness and the ultimate faithfulness of God is an amazing time just to, to turn to the table. This story that we see in Judges, this really is the gospel story that gets played out over and over and over again throughout human history and even in our own lives. We read Judges and we're reminded, I mean, that we are a creature, and we are created by Yahweh. We are created by God. We are not here of our own accord, but we are simply a creature of His. And by what we have done and what we have left undone, we have wandered. We have done evil in the eyes of God, even when we have tried to be faithful. At best, we've been mostly faithful, but it hasn't been completely faithful. In seasons, we have forsook and forgotten God, put him in the rearview mirror and assimilated into the culture around us. And for all of us, we've been in seasons where, man, that has plunged our lives into deep distress. But in the same way that Israel was in distress and we are in distress and on our own and cannot save ourselves because of sin, In the same way that God sent judges in the book of Judges, God has sent Christ for us. That in our weakness, in our trials, in our distress, in our situation in which we were unable to save ourselves, God sent Christ to die in our place, to pay a price we could not pay, that we would be delivered. And so it's by God's invitation by his grace, that he delivers us and he saves us and we can return. We can take the next few moments and 
Remember the goodness of God. Remember the greatness of God. Remember the times in our lives when God has been faithful.